Welcome to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. Here's your host, Danny Piper. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of the Printing Money podcast. For those who weren't able to join uh, AM Strategies in New York 2024, it was a really interesting show. Lots of great speakers, lots of good access to uh, decision makers. I am fortunate to be joined today with one of the panels uh, on market research. And I think this is a piggyback really from our last episode. We had Chris Chidzik on and Dayton from the Association of Manufacturing Technologies, where we covered sort of the trends in the sort of the broader machine tool industry. And so today uh, we're going to talk more about the additive manufacturing research uh, landscape and including sort of where the forecasts are and the trends. So with me today, I've got Scott Dunham from Additive Manufacturing Research. Some of you formerly knew them as SmartTech. And then also Matthias Schmidt-Leder from AM Power. They were both on stage and had an interesting discussion and I felt like it was worth the time to get everybody sort of spun up on who they are. If you don't know them, you should know them. And uh, why don't we start real quickly? Scott, why don't you give us a quick background on yourself and additive manufacturing research? And then Matthias will do the same with you. Hello, gentlemen. Yeah, Danny, thanks for having me. Um, additive manufacturing research, uh, previously you mentioned called Smart Tech. Uh, most of the audience probably recognizes the name smart tech and not additive manufacturing research. So we recently rebranded and that reflects our 10 year history exclusively covering additive markets with uh, research services, consulting, and uh, probably our, our most uh, relevant uh, product and, and service to this, um, to this discussion is our advisory services. So that's like a quarterly tracking for market uh, data, you know, printer sales, materials, you know, that type of thing. So that's all um, kind of like our bread and butter, you know, market analysis for the additive sector. Um, I've been lucky enough to serve as the executive vice president of research um, for the company for the last 10 years. So I've been doing this a while. AM Strategies was a, a really great show this year, and it was uh, really nice to be able to be on stage with, you know, the other, um, I think, knowledgeable and, and important um, research, you know, entities and voices in that um, space uh, this year. So happy to be here. Thanks, Scott. And Matthias, uh, how about a little bit of background on you and how you got into this and AM Power? Yeah, sure. It's great to be on this on this podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, my name my name is Matthias. I'm one of the three founding partners of Empower. Empower is a uh, German based company. We're based in Hamburg, that's north of Germany. We founded the company with two other partners in uh, 2017. So now we are. About seven years in business, um, we have been starting off with consulting in additive manufacturing and uh, predominantly supported users and customers and, and, and the supply chain of additive manufacturing with projects that are related to go-to-market strategies or um, topics around implementation of additive manufacturing. Um, we all have an engineering background, our pretty technical team, and looking um, always from an application side of things into the market. And that was also the main driver for us to move towards research and, and market analytics in 2019 when we published our first Empower report. Um, and we wanted to bring a bit of a new spin into the into the research world by trying to cover more the user side of things, the user forecast of things of, of additive manufacturing, 
um, because we saw that applications are are the driving factor of this industry, and we wanted to to emphasize a little bit more on that. The company is now um, around ten people strong, and and um, yeah, we're covering uh, projects still in predominantly in the consulting side, and and uh, the reporting and analytics is like um, a part of the business nowadays. Yeah, so I tell you, maybe just for the audience' sake, because I know we get Troy Jensen on here regularly, and and he has the title research as well. And I just want to delineate for everybody, um, you know, Troy. And when we think about the financial markets, you have research analysts, and they are specifically registered to go out and do analysis on public companies for for trading applications for institutional investors. And when we bring the two of you on, really, I rely on you both for purposes of being an M&A specialist and going out to transact. What are the trends? What's the data in the market? Where are we going? What what environments are we selling into? You both have great resources and support. And so what I'd like to maybe do, if just for background and educational for everybody else, maybe start, you know, Scott, you can start on this question. You know, give us a little bit of how do you go about sort of your bespoke investment? You you have some reports too, but how do you approach research? What do you, what are you doing? Are you doing surveys? How do you come about driving and deriving some of your data? No problem. Yeah, uh, I could not stress uh, more getting into this. Um, the importance of understanding when you're reviewing some data sources what is the actual underlying methodology, but also like what is included and what's excluded. I see that all the time in the research side, you know, people not understanding like just what's being counted and what's not being counted. And and then, uh, you know, there's confusion that results from that. So on the methodology side for at AM research, um, what we're doing to track the industry kind of ties back to, um, a modeling approach where, you know, we view everything flowing out of, uh, the printers out of, out of hardware. Right. So, uh, we're tracking at our base level hardware sales, um, from who we view are the, uh, most influential suppliers in a given AM print technology segment. So powder bed fusion, for example, you know, analyze all the players in the field, pick, you know, ideally the top six to eight, you know, most influential as well as account for all the remaining companies that maybe are a little less established or, or newer. Um, and then we model up from their machine installations uh, and sales, obviously to different sectors, things like that. And ultimately it flows through to, to generate kind of the rest of the data uh, in the industry. It flows through to, uh, material, you know, uh, utilization profiles of various types of or classifications of AM machines for a given company. Uh, and ultimately, we have a, a, another process as well for covering the services market. So it, it's, you know, it's a, there's a whole lot that goes on behind the scenes. Um, a lot of that is informed by bespoke uh, surveys and, and things, you know, specific to our customers that we've established over the last 10 years, you know, in, in this industry. So we work closely with some of them. And, uh, and kind of a process of triangulation on data points uh, with feedback from the market. Yeah, Matthias, I think uh, you have a number of reports, by the way, For and, and we'll jump into some of these in a little bit. But you know, some of the things that stand out and that are a little bit different for you is you also do some printer development, some printer testing, materials testing. Tell us a little bit about how you go about research, what your goal is as well. Yeah, we are we are trying to to segment between technical analysis and market analysis. So um, we do a couple of publications. Most of them are free, freely available online. Um, we started already in the first year of business with publishing those insights that look deeper into a specific technical 
topic or a technical subject in, in additive manufacturing. And the motivation for this technological analysis was that we saw a lot of the market being driven by certain promises of what additive manufacturing can do. And what we wanted to bring up is what it can really do and where also the limits of the technology or the current maturity level. There are so many different technologies, different materials, different applications in additive manufacturing. It's quite a complex landscape. And what we were trying is to put a bit more transparency in that into that landscape and bring in clarification, especially for users, to which maturity level they can expect from a certain technology. Because manufacturing is an extremely complex endeavor and, and you need to have certainty around technical capabilities before you make a certain investment in, into the millions in some cases. And the other part of the of the uh, analy- analytical side is the market um, analysis and the report that we publish. In this report, we we mostly use data that we firsthand gain from interviews with machine OEMs, with material suppliers, service suppliers, or part manufacturing suppliers, as well as users. So around around half of the interviews we do for each report. Are, um, are voices from users and customers of additive manufacturing. And they bring, bring in especially the view from, from the usability side. They tell us how much they're actually utilizing machines, which types of machines they want to invest in into the future, etc. Perfect. Well, let's jump into sort of the maybe a little bit about what's going on in the market and the trends you're seeing. I know that the 20, you know, really the thing about putting a bow on 2023, we're not done yet because we haven't seen the quarterly reports, the final quarters coming out from the public companies. They're all going to be reporting in the next month. But um, if we all had a crystal ball of what, what's going to come out, sort of looking at some of the trends, I think that, that maybe the first trend I'd like to talk about is, you know, what's happening in the various geographic regions, because, you know, Scott, you're based in the U.S., Matthias, you're based in Europe, and then I think we're all kind of speculating what's going on in Asia. And so, you know, I think it'd be interesting to see how you see the markets growing, shrinking. What are some of the growth drivers for these regions? And so I'll I'll, I'll tee that one up. Maybe, Scott, you want to talk a little bit about what you're seeing in your data sets, and then, Matthias, you can kind of chime in and kind of validate or, um, you know, provide your thoughts as well. Yeah, the the overall looking at the big picture, um, things haven't changed a whole lot year to year the last couple of years. Um, you know, things are changing sort of slowly all the time, but there hasn't haven't been like a lot of radical shifts uh, that we're seeing play out in the data. Um, one of the main trends, of course, has been uh, more and more activity uh, from the various Asian regions, especially China. Um, a lot of that is tied more, I think, on the metal side. Uh, with kind of the surge of um, Farsoon, BLT, a couple of those other companies. Um, and uh, I think the story there really is, uh, you know, years, decades even of, of selling kind of uh, domestically and, uh, and now looking sort of outwardly to, you know, expansion, you know, where are the easier areas to sort of uh, kind of adopt early and then maybe grow from there. We've seen a lot of it in the in the dental segment, you know, with the existing smaller machines from those companies that make sense there. It's a relatively price sensitive market uh, for AM technologies, especially on the metal side. So selling some of those smaller 
yeah. machines, you know, has made sense. And now they're kind of developing like a more serious platform, especially around aerospace and in the big markets that, you know, the let's West jump, has been involved yeah, in. Yeah, we'll jump on the machine sales in a second. I, I'm curious, Mateus, how do you see Europe versus the U.S. market and, and how that's developing? I think historically, Europe was um, was very strong on the metal side. Most of the of the early adopters, early companies supplying metal machines were based in Europe. And we had a strong base there. And um, nowadays it's shifted a little bit because um, we, we see a certain saturation in, in Europe on the part manufacturing um, side. So service suppliers have a lot of capacity currently open. And also on the user side, you, you have a very strong automotive sector, especially in Germany, but also across Europe, a lot of bases in automotive that have been adapting additive manufacturing since quite some time, but made at a certain uh, point of time in the past couple of years, they they didn't make so much more progress anymore. So and they they're taking a huge part of the market overall. So Europe, in in generally is is currently I would say a much uh, um, has much weaker growth compared to the US, especially with the investments uh, that are publicly driven in the US. A lot of machine sales are are now being steered towards towards the US. That's, yeah. that's something we can see as, uh, from European suppliers as well as from the US-based suppliers. Yeah, I, I would say that it's something that we're seeing too. I, I, and, I, and I'm curious as to some of the underlying fundamentals of it is that we see, especially in the services side, the US companies, I mean, none of them are large and growing at significant rates. They are definitely, well, say that fairly Many of them are growing at significant rates, but they're the law of small numbers. So when you're growing from a five to ten million to ten to twenty, those those are significant growth rates. But I think in larger industries, they're they're not massive uh, leaps and gains. But in Europe, we're seeing sort of the the key players there oftentimes can be smaller and growing a little slower, at least from from what we're seeing. And it sounds like that's consistent. If we think about sort of maybe staying on services for a second, and then we'll jump into the machines uh, side of this uh, on that growth. How do you look at services? Because I see that the driver for services might be a little bit of a tale of two stories, that the older prototyping companies versus the production companies. Am I on thinking about this correctly, that they are sort of growing differently and production starting to pick its, you know, get its pace, those that have done the qualifications and are segmented? are starting to do well and those that are sort of prototyping largely are more flat. Is that, that that's sort of a general theme that I think I see. I'm curious at how you see it. Scott, why don't you, yeah, any, any thoughts on services? Sure. Businesses? Yeah. I mean, it, with everything additive, it's kind of like you establish what you think is kind of like a, a, a pretty solid trend and then you'll always find like some kind of radical exception. So <laughs> that's just the mark of an immature industry, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I think that's generally correct. And on our services, you know, analysis and our stuff that we do at AM Research for this, we kind of segment the mar- the services market specifically from like companies that are less specialized up to companies that are more, it's like a spectrum, more specialized. So the less specialized providers do tend to, you know, that's more of the rapid prototyping, you know, they're, they're, they're just a pretty classic business model. Um, and then the more specialized companies these days are more like the contract manufacturers and those developing kind of like very specialist additive manufacturing, you know, businesses for certain industries or maybe certain part types of parts. Um, I, I do think that it's challenging regardless of which end of the spectrum you're on right now. But I think that we're, you know, our data shows anyways, that um, we're seeing a little bit higher growth rates from those that are increasing in specialization um, because 
that tends to go hand in hand with, you know, they're solving some real problems. Um, they're not so tied to overall manufacturing activity, you know, with regards to prototyping and new product development, stuff like that. Matthias, how about you? Are you seeing sort of a similar dynamic in Europe and maybe any sort of growth drivers and bright spots on the uh, production side of the world? I agree. I agree with what what Scott said. Um, we, we see the same split into companies that are quite flexible, have many different technologies, materials in-house and are being utilized for prototyping, jigs, fixtures, etc. Uh, maybe small series production for less demanding industries. As soon as, be- as it becomes an end product, a demanding industry, a higher volume, in- risks increases. And in-, in many cases, you need a company that specialized to a certain to a certain industry. So we, we see not many companies that are doing, let's say, medical and aviation components at the same shop floor in the same factory. So m- most of them are trying to focus on a specific industry or, or even a specific application. What's also interesting is that we see a couple of companies that that uh, came and emerged from, from pure AM players, pure AM service bureaus and started special, specializing into a certain segment. And at the same time, there are companies that are long established as as a part manufacturing supplier for maybe machine parts or casted parts or other types of components and are integrating additive manufacturing. And the interesting thing is that some of the end users, some of the companies who purchase those parts actually prefer those types of suppliers because they are already qualified to a certain extent. It's much easier to onboard them. But at the same time, it's more difficult to, to um, yeah, make them master 3D printing and, and, and understand the technology. And they're usually a bit slower of, of adapting and, and, and changing. So it's an interesting interesting game they're playing around uh, around this side of yeah make or buy and and uh, where to purchase the parts but well, it's important and the reason why i bring this one up and i i will tell you we were in a pitch presentation about uh two three weeks ago and given where the valuations are with 3d printing companies it's today when we walk into some of these, if you are specialized, say it's aerospace and defense and or it's medical, it's almost more important now to be aligned as an aerospace defense company that does 3D printing than a 3D printing company that does aerospace. Just because the stability of those markets, how you sell into those markets, the regulatory pathways are more aligned to exactly what you both were saying. And so for those listening out there, I think that's something to think about is where is your sweet spot for your customer base? Are you aligned for those kinds of production revenues if you are doing specialized services? Let's shift over to the OEM side of the world, because I think this is one where there's more sort of things going on here. And I, you know, I, I think when we started with this conversation with Chris Chidzik last uh, month, he said that the machine tool sales, you know, he is we're still running his numbers for 2023, but largely thought that there was a little bit of a dip in the market from 2022 to 2023. And so just love to get your feedback, impressions. What, what are you thinking, seeing out there? What are you know some of the dynamics playing out on the OEM side of the world for printers? Yeah, for printers, uh, Danny, the 23, I mean, so we talked about this at AMS, but you know, the, the first three quarters of the year, pretty flat overall. Um, I mean, that's the overall numbers, but obviously they're they're heavily influenced by printer sales. And and when you look at the impact of um cost financing, interest rates, that type of thing. I mean, that more is, you know, obviously affects uh, investment in printers because those tend to be, you know, the larger capital investment uh, CapEx type stuff. So 
that definitely impacted things the first, you know, several quarters of the year. I think I'm sure it will continue to go on, you know, having some effect uh, as well in the next year. But we're starting to see things on the printer side. We're starting to see some more positive signs now at the end of the year. Obviously, fourth quarter is not um, closed out all the way. You know, a few blips and, you know, uh, changes in the market can obviously kind of change the, the the total outlook. But we were we were expecting, you know, now at this stage where we're almost final, um, the metal side still managed to grow uh, in, in terms of printers, um, at least a little bit, you know, barely eking out some double digit uh, growth. And then on the uh, on the polymer side, we didn't quite see as much growth, um, but it's all, you know, kind of that lost small numbers thing again. Also, um, you know, they're coming from a little bit larger base, although metals is catching up. So growth, you know, is, is still barely the, <laughs> the, uh, the norm, but um, I think it'll, it'll start accelerating again next year as well. Matthias, how about yeah. uh, what, what are you seeing? Similar trends or? Yeah, pretty similar here. I I might want to add that we probably end up at a at similar growth rates as before, but not necessarily because of the companies that are based in in Europe or or the US, but uh, because of the Chinese companies that are more and more pushing onto European markets and and having strong growth, especially on the metal side. Um, so at least what they're reporting reporting right now is is quite strong uh, growth in sales even last year. And where we also see a strong growth is in in the small machine sector, where you have smaller machines that have similar capabilities like larger industrial machines, but at a much uh, smaller cost, much smaller capex. Those types of investments are growing rapidly, but that. Probably doesn't doesn't uh, compensate for the for the losses we have in the larger machine segment side. Also on the very large machine side, we see some growth in at least in metal, um, but especially in this in this medium sized range of of three hundred millimeter, two hundred fifty, three hundred millimeter type machine size. Um, it was quite a difficult year last year. Interesting, because there there's a trend. I think if we look at sort of the financings and we listen to sort of the companies in the space on the metal side, a lot of bigger format printers were being financed. Now, some of those under the guise of services when you talk to the Vulcan Labs and the Surats and Freeforms, but, you know, large format, you know, powder bed. But you listen to SLM and the NXG developments and sort of, you know, where EOS is going, bigger seems to be the race. Um, and you said sort of that middle ground is sort of kind of being the one that's very difficult. And then sort of the smaller end is is sort of opening up. It seems like the adoption, right? Scott, you're saying metals is growing. I think that's that, that makes sense, especially as aerospace is probably, a, I, I think, a key driver in the U.S. The space industry in particular is probably a key driver for rocket engines and others. But, you know, I... I don't know the answer to this, but I, I wonder the race for big. I see the economic benefit for those that are already producing parts and those that you know have those applications. But the adoption curve for new entrants to use those large machines is really challenging. So it's hard to grow the market with those, except with existing big players. You know, and I'm wondering. You you talk about some of the smaller machines. A lot of that's on the polymer side. How do you see staying in metals for a second? How do you see that market playing out? Is are we all going to gravitate to big, or do we see sort of some openings on the small side? I don't think we're all going to gravitate to big because you know, really big started as a user. You know, primarily from the needs of users who you know, AM metal AM made a lot of sense for specifically. You know, space defense. Um, I guess to a certain degree, maybe aviation energy. Those users for the last couple of years were saying, "Yeah, we we like AM. We're we're doing. You know, we see potential there. Definitely, uh, we we want to be able to print bigger parts." And um, 
you know, some of it got really specific. And uh, so the machine community in, in turn kind of responded and, and started, you know, developing these big machines and now they're here. Uh, but they really were for, you know, in my view they're, of things, they're for very specific customers and fairly specific range of applications. I mean, obviously you, you want to print more often like single, very large parts or like a collection of, you know, very large parts, generally speaking for those to make sense. So I don't think that really applies to like a whole, you know, huge market opportunity necessarily um, in the same way that, you know, maybe a more slightly more versatile and, and less, maybe a little bit less expensive machine uh, could potentially apply to across a, like the range of industries that are all looking to adopt AM or hope or at least interested in it at some level. So I don't, I don't necessarily think we're, we're all going to go big. Um, but I think that's definitely going to, you know, we'll see some growth from that in the next couple of years, purely from the defense side. That's that's what's been set up the last couple of years. And now we're here. Mateus, unless, yeah, if you want, maybe pivot onto the polymer side um, and what you're side, kind of seeing and sort of the dynamics playing out in that space, because that is one where there's a lot of entrance at the you know lower end price points. It, maybe maybe just just one one follow up to the to the metal side. All the all the large metal machines are being sold predominantly for large applications, as you mentioned, and it, it's a limited number of companies you can sell that to. And the growth is there, but I don't see many other companies following into those footsteps of of uh, uh, producing other large machines at a similar scale of 600, 700 plus millimeter. Um, it, it will remain, I guess, a handful of companies who will serve that that market also because it's it's very difficult to to approach and and the entry level is quite high. On the polymer side, we we definitely also have certain large machines, but I think it's a very selective market as well. You have you have a handful of applications. I wouldn't say there's any any clear trend. Uh, on the polymer side, I think the trend towards small industrial scale machines is much more interesting. Um, so small SLS machines, for example, can can produce uh, parts from powder on, on much uh, lower investments are extremely interesting. Um, also, all the other downsizing, downgrading um, machines that are that are stripped of all unnecessary components being produced in larger quantities so so they can really be optimized for for lower price, lower cost. Um, I think the days are over where you need to pay a lot of premium for a 3D printer or for an industrial 3D printer. Um, where a lot of the value that you pay in the end goes into into sales, marketing, development, etc. Since more and more patents are open now, you can just any many companies can just go out there and start uh, producing similar kinds of technology, and this enables them to really drive down costs and and take out strip out any kind of unnecessary uh, cost into such a printer and simply sell it. Um, so that, that's extremely beneficial for the industry, by the way, because uh, especially the, the segment of industrial is benefiting a lot from that. They don't have uh, the deep pockets, but they have very, very interesting applications. So overall, this will, I think, strongly increase the market share and the market overall, um, while maybe not having such a big impact on the, on the dollars in the end because of the much smaller investments. Well, let's uh, let's pivot for a second because I mean the scope of this podcast is usually M and A deals, financing deals, and you know understanding the trends to me is very important. And I think uh, hopefully that's that's where we've talked about. But 
Matthias, you just published a report on venture financing history with the team at AM Ventures. For those uh, who are listening, I highly recommend going to the Ampower website and you can download a copy of this report. But maybe talk a little bit about that report as a teaser here, because I think it's for, for a lot of uh, the listeners, that's a it's a well done report. Uh, it's it's probably the best of its kind that I've seen. Yeah, the, the the collaboration started somewhere in summer last year, where we 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 are collecting quite a lot of data around startups and and uh, venture capital activities in the AM space, and uh, we were always in in discussions with AM Ventures because they were also collecting a lot of data on their side, screening the markets obviously for interesting assets. Um, and at some point, we just had the idea and, and realized that it might make sense to actually run some analysis over the combined databases of both of our, our companies. So together, we, we ended up with roughly around 3,500, I think, around that number of startups in the past 10 years. Always difficult to say really what is a startup, what is not, but... Um, I think it covers pretty well the the overall startup um, area. I think about nine hundred for around nine hundred, maybe thousand of those we had data of of funds that had been raised. The others were either still in stealth mode or didn't publicly disclose any kind of funding. Um, so for those that that have raised any any type of investments, money uh, funding. Um, we were able to uh, dive deeper into where the money came from, what t- what type of round, what type of uh, size of of uh, series A, B, C, etc. They they had during their their time period. And what is interesting is that um, first of all, there is a clear trend towards application startups. Um, on the supply chain, we we see a clear decline in in investment and and new fundings, new new founded companies. Um, especially in the past two years. One reason might be that money is scarce and diff- more difficult to raise. But I think the other reason is that it's just more difficult to find any real new invention in additive manufacturing that's worth um, bringing up a new startup with. It's, it's most of There's a, a tons of technologies now out there, materials, software, for everything there's seemingly a solution. And it's more and more difficult for users to differentiate between all those different technologies and and invest into a new software new technology or whatever is being offered there so i think i think this is going to slow down this is a sign of also industrialization and maturity of the industry i might say but it's also clearly driven by the by the uh, difficulties in in funding on the application side it's a bit different trend we also see decline but that is Probably mostly due to the, to the uh, due to the financial situation, but we still see a lot of startups being founded newly with applications that are really driven by additive manufacturing. So companies that really revolutionize their their industry uh, by by fully embracing additive, and they they just have a much easier way of developing products in that area than established companies, for example, in medical, et cetera, where, you, where, where it's extremely difficult to bring up new products. A startup has a certain time period where it can actually burn money, let's say, to, to bring a product into this type of market. Yeah, well, I think this always comes back to this sort of recurring analogy this industry uses on sort of applications versus equipment. And 
you know, who actually was more valuable, a line or 3D systems, right? As we looked at the use of it versus the technology manufacturers. So it's not surprising that's the trend. I would encourage everybody, there's some really interesting data on there on various rounds of uh, capital raised from Series A through later rounds, the clustering, where geographically uh, you think these startups are. I thought that was actually one of the more surprising ones. I would have thought that, um, you know, the U.S. would have been a little higher in that one. We're actually pretty far down the list. And uh, I won't tell you who's on top of the list, but it won't it shouldn't surprise many people. Uh, so some good data in there. Maybe that's a good segue for us to talk about what's happened in the last month since the last episode. And um, I'd say there's some activity in the market. Uh, I think Matthias just told us there's there's not been as much as historical periods. So let's jump into this one. I think the first one to, to really talk about is on the financing sides was Wayland Additive just raised $4.2 million dollars. Um, they're an electron beam uh, 3D printing company for powder bed applications based in the UK. Obviously, this gives sort of another entrant into the e-beam markets. What do you guys think about e-beam and Wayland? I don't have tons to say specifically about Wayland. Um, you know, we've been looking at them for a little while. And, um, you know, like you mentioned, Danny, the another entity in e-beam uh, is definitely, you know, a net positive. Uh, we discussed that the other day um, that you need some kind of basis of, you know, in, in a supply chain, if you are wanting to adopt a technology, if you're a, you know, fairly serious manufacturer. So that's always, uh, you know, that's good. Another serious company that is able to raise capital and, and you know, uh, show investors value uh, or, or potential value. Um, eBeam is is really interesting. I, I think kind of overall the additive market um, will continue to see like more technologies being developed around very specific problems, uh, like whole print technologies. Like um, you know, well, there's some examples of that out there. Basically, like technology specifically for printing tooling or, or something like that. And eBeam is not exactly that, but it's kind of like a um, one of the more successful offshoots of, you know, kind of like one of the, the, the major commercialized AM processes and metal powder bed fusion. And so I like that there's more diversity out there in the, in the supply base so that people can look at something like metal powder bed fusion and say, you know, this, this is what we, this is the route we want to go down. But now that there's, you know, now there's some more, um, nuance to it with, you know, do we want to go with something that's maybe a little more productive, but possibly give up something on feature size uh, with something like e-beam versus, you know, laser. So um, I, I just like this in general. I mean, as a, like I said, we, we, in our firm, we all kind of uh, coming from a technology perspective and engineering perspective. And, and from that standpoint, it's extremely good to have multiple players in a certain technology that push the technology forward. Um, if you have for too long period of time only one player in a certain market that holds certain patents, um, the, the technology always has difficulties to evolve at a certain point of time when when the company starts earning money with it. Um, and especially if you if you start delivering machines into the medical sector where where at a certain time customers don't want to change much of the machine anymore for for a good reason, um, then of course innovation is is being uh, is being held back and. Um, I think the the entries of Wayland and Probeam and and a couple of others into this market is gonna gonna push that forward a lot because there is a lot more potential in EBM that we have seen so far in the market and um, 
I think the, the parallel development of laser powder bed was showing that pretty clearly we had three, four competitors at a very early stage that were driving this technology. And that was extremely helpful um, because they were pushing each other basically to, to become better and, and fighting for a certain market. And we need the same developments for EBM. And I think from a technical perspective, that technology has a lot of potential to simplify the process. It might seem complex in the first um, view, but on the other hand, you have certain peaks like you can you can implement the the heat treatment for example in the build job so you you can already cut out a certain process step from a conventional laser powder bed process chain um, and you have a couple of other advantages that that uh, you can utilize for a certain number of applications in, in metal yeah no i actually if you look at sort of companies like cosm not only can you do the uh the heat um treatment as well but you can also do sort of the in-situ monitoring by, by monitoring the sort of the um, electrons coming off the melt. So, um, and you sort of mentioned RCAM obviously has been the predominant player. They got bought by GE. So companies like ProBeam is another one, right? JOL out of Japan is another one. Sort of to put a bow on this uh, topic though for a second, sort of uh, just I think this deal actually closed in November, but the announcement really just came out in January. Looks like it was mostly the existing investors, Longwall Ventures and Parkwall Ventures. They'd also funded the company sort of, uh, you know, in some of their prior rounds. So, um, but this one may have closed, uh, you know, in Q4. So if you've already heard about this, uh, for those people in the know, um, we're just picking it up because that's when the news media really hit it. It showed up in PitchBook a little earlier. So congrats to that team. They'd also raised money last year. So this isn't the first time they've been on the podcast. They raised another $4.6 million last year or pounds actually. Uh, so they've been at it for a while and, uh, good. We have an, another player in the e-beam space. So one thing that when we were prepping for this, as you made me feel good about, is um, that you both haven't covered sort of the construction-related 3D printing companies. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit these two next ones uh, fairly quickly because it's just amazing to me how much money is starting to flow into construction 3D printing. And, and having the opportunity, there's not only a panel at AMS on it, but having talked to a few of the companies now, they really have the same problems that we have in terms of material consistency as it goes through the mixers, as it goes, you know, through extruders, getting the, you know, deposition, the, the placement. It's really all the same problems. So it's it's interesting to hear. I think it's just the, the people in the construction industry usually aren't the engineers. So they, they think these are all novel new problems, but it's it's interesting. So we had two financings that occurred. Uh, one is a company uh, close to me, uh, Azure Printed Homes in Culver City. They were founded in 2019, and uh, they just picked up, I think it was a $5 million set of uh, safe notes, uh, or Series A funding, so they didn't disclose the investors. And they're doing sort of these small like ADUs, the additional dwelling units or little backyard homes and other structures at this point. The second company is out of Pennsylvania. I believe they bought a property on an abandoned airport. It's called Black Buffalo. And this isn't their first um, raise either. So they were founded in 2020. Also doing, they have a sort of a large gantry-based system that they've developed for building, you know, larger structures and buildings. And so they raised $4.25 million on January 30th. So 
The construction market seems to be pulling in money still and obviously trying to adopt this. Uh, looks like it's still pretty fragmented, like uh, many other areas of 3D printing, probably more so, by the way, than from what I've seen. And I'm I'm early days in my homework on this one, but congratulations to Azure and Black Buffalo for getting those two done. So that doesn't really leave us with a lot of venture deals this uh, last month, right, to, to reemphasize it. There's probably two other things to quickly note on the financing side um, on on companies and additive desktop metal. Uh, they just did a mixed shelf offering. Uh, they put a filing with the SEC, hired Cantor Fitzgerald. So kudos to the Cantor team uh, for a $250 million financing that's uh, to be done. So you'll hear more on this one probably in the next episode or, or later um, since we're going to have... Uh, Troy Jensen coming back on from Cantor. And then this isn't really a financing per se in our industry, but Core Industrial Partners just raised another fund. I think everybody knows the name Core Industrial Partners because they've had a couple of 3D printing. I'll, I'll call them a pretty a 3D printing friendly uh, private equity fund in that they did the Fathom SPAC deal and we're behind that. But they also have 3DX Tech on the polymer side and uh, another services company by the name of Updiv, where they've rolled up a few companies. So the fact that they're getting another fund and can go back for more deals is good for the industry. Uh, so it's worth noting. Moving on, uh, this is a uh, an odd one. I think for the U.S. markets and, and largely in Europe too, the IPO market is largely closed. But an IPO was just recently done in Japan with Solize. And uh, for those of that you are not familiar, they do have a variety of services in terms of CAD engineering services, design services, and printing services. Um, they, they list on their website, they have SLS capabilities, uh, multi-jet fusion capabilities. They mentioned 3D systems, printers, but they didn't say what's, uh, what types. So... Um, on Solize, they uh, ultimately raised about $10 million in this offering. They have revenues of about $119 million, and their market cap is around 85 So they're actually trading in a similar revenue multiple range to where the public's like 3D Systems and, and Stratasys are. So um, interesting to see that in Japan, they're getting a financing done. It's not crazy value. So uh, it makes sense the way they got priced and the fact that they, you know, they, this is a company that's been around since 1990. So they're not a pure play uh, 3D printing company, um, but they are certainly incorporating those services. And that was why it made our, uh, our deal sheet. Maybe we'll move on to some of the M&A deals that had occurred. The CA Models, that was based in Scotland, in the UK, uh, was acquired by Prototol. And Matthias, I think this is where you were sort of alluding to. We were chatting on this one. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I think Prototype bought quite a lot of companies in the past five years and, and expanded rapidly within Europe. Um, pretty similar to Beamit. Also, a company that that acquired uh, a bunch of service providers in in Europe, and and I think initiated a, a consolidation phase. Both of them did by um, by um, yeah, uniting forces there. I think it, it makes sense because all of them are covering both of them are covering big areas in the three D printing side on on the production side as well as on the prototyping side, covering multiple technologies, covering multiple different industries in the segment. And I think at some point we will see a similar development in the U.S. where you might still have a lot of smaller job shops around. But at, at a certain point of time, you 
you compete a lot around pricing and you need to consolidate to to yeah to to survive in this market I yeah want to see more I, of that in the next couple of years well, you're right. Actually, there is so that Uptive transaction that Core's done is is not too dissimilar. So Prototal, they were bought by a private equity group called Nalka Invest in 2019. Since that transaction that uh, the PE investor uh, put money in, they've done eight acquisitions, exactly to your point. And the vast majority of them, because the company's based in Sweden, have been in Sweden. But in 2022, they had a company in Austria which is IZR1ZU1. And then they had another uh, acquisition of a company in Italy, uh, Procilla. So interesting, uh, by the way, correlation that you brought up, Beamit, you know, given the, the connections to Italy. So thinking of it, even in the US, we see similar developments, right? With Atman and, and Beehive. I think both of them also acquired multiple assets in the service side. Yep. Um, so seems to. Trend. That's that's sort of a, a trend where you can sort of roll up. Admin's a good one, and uh, and and so I, we expect to see more of these uh, over time as private equity is slowly moving into these markets. So we brought up L squared on a prior one with I three D. You just you know you just mentioned Beehive and and Admin and others. So uh, th- this is where the market's going to go uh, for sure as these companies mature. The next round of capital that's not venture starts to become private equity. So. That's it really on the m and I'd say there's probably two more things to cover. Well, one is that uh, there's a company by the name of New Borough. Uh, they make blue lasers. They are a public company. They've announced that they've hired an investment bank, Northland Capital Markets, to explore their strategic options, which means they are going to go for sale. Um, this is one, it gets characterized in the additive because they've been working through a number of additive initiatives with their blue laser program, but it's sort of a head scratcher of a company when you go and look at it. And, you know, I would say this company, from what I can see in spite of September 2023, their trailing 12 months revenues were 1.71 million with losses of 8.7 million and a market cap of 6 million. And it's sort of, this is a very challenging place for companies that are in this R&D phase that really haven't hit their stride to be real public companies. The, the quarterly reporting just eats them alive. They're, they're not there because the adoption curve and um, really the, you know, where they can address the market just needs time to be developed. So they don't typically make good public companies. So hopefully they find a home Seems like the the right answers might be the Trumps of the world who already have great laser platforms, also have a green laser program, the inlights of the world potentially that can incorporate this into some of theirs. So there's some opportunities for them. And then the last sort of area, and this is one that um, I've been reluctant to do on the podcast in prior episodes, but I think this is sort of an unfortunate reality. It's sort of the RIP section, you know, the rest in peace section. Um, and some of these, I'm just going off news articles, but uh, I've got a couple announcements to make. Um, Arivo, there was an article that came out that their assets were up for sale. I know it had been publicly disclosed that they had hired Shearwood uh, Partners, which is a assignment for benefit accreditor and bankruptcy sort of company to resolve those. Unfortunately, this is, uh, you know, I'm not going to say a whole lot more as we were involved in their Series B round with Airbus and uh, know some of the discussions. I uh, don't know where the home of those assets went, but, um, you yeah, know, that's, that's unfortunate. 
not far away from them. Uh, recently, Uniformity Labs, the metal powders company, just had an auction for their equipment. So um, unfortunately, that's another sad one is Adam uh, and his team, uh, I thought, had done a, a, you know, a very interesting job of starting to try to build out sort of one of the early powder companies in additive. And it's an expensive business and probably uh, had a little too much overhead. And in this environment, it's hard to hard to save some of these companies. We're seeing more and more of it. The, the next two are sort of restructuring is what I'll call them. Shapeways, there was a report or an article that came out that they were liquidating $5 million worth of desktop metal equipment. Um, as that company is in a cash need, I think it's sort of, they had a production system as one of the systems that they were uh, unloading. And then um, the last one is Morph 3D, which uh, it, this one's not surprising at all. Uh, Nikon had bought Morph 3D. It was their first investment into uh, the 3D printing, you know, metal 3D printing landscape. Why don't understand customers and with customers like Boeing, who was an investor in it, it made sense at the time. But when they bought SLM and they became an OEM for equipment, having a services business that might compete with some of their customers was a challenge. And then double that with the idea that all the equipment that they had in place was EOS equipment. Um, they have been liquidating that equipment um, you know, to various other players in the industry. And so those are sort of the, the trends that are occurring here as this industry is restructuring. Um, and so I'm sure we haven't covered them all. So that uh, that is pretty much it on the deal front uh, for the last month. Scott, Matthias, I, I really appreciate both of you joining your respectives. Uh, if, for those who are inclined, I would recommend that you visit additivemanufacturingresearch.com and you can find out about more in the reports and the bespoke types of research capabilities that Scott and his team are involved with. And then ampower.eu is the best way to find Matthias and his partners. And that's where you can also download the uh, venture report that they just finished up with the team at AM Ventures. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time. And this concludes episode 15 of the Printing Money Podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to Printing Money the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. For more information about what you just listened to or for past episodes, visit www.3dprint.com.